On this week's edition of New York Now, former Governor Andrew Cuomo faces a criminal misdemeanor sex crime charge, and A.G. Tish James is running for governor. More on that. Then, New York's childcare industry has been in trouble for a while, and the pandemic made it worse. We'll take you there and tell you what could happen next. And later, Tuesday is election day, and you'll be voting on changes to the state constitution. We'll go through each one to get you ready. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. Former Governor Andrew Cuomo is now facing a criminal charge for an alleged sex crime. Albany County investigators filed a criminal complaint against the former governor Thursday, saying he'll be charged with forcibly touching a former aide. That aide, Brittany Camisso, has claimed that Cuomo reached under her blouse when she was at the executive mansion in Albany last year. And according to the complaint, investigators say they have enough evidence to corroborate that claim. Cuomo will be charged with a Class A misdemeanor, which can carry up to a year in jail. And this is not expected to be an easy case. Cuomo has denied the claims, and his attorney, Rita Glavin, said just last week they'll continue to challenge them. Putting all this to the side, he didn't grope Ms. Camiso on that day or on any other day. What Ms. Camiso said about her interactions with the governor when she claimed that he groped her breast do not match up. So a long road ahead. Daryl Camp is with me in studio now to break it down. Daryl, thanks for being here as always. Thank you. This news broke on Thursday and, um, you know, I don't think I was expecting it so soon because criminal investigations usually take quite a while. Mm -hmm. But it came out, um, I guess let's start with what happens next now. We have him charged, where are we going with this? Well, what happens next is a continuation of the media blitz we have seen from the Cuomo team for the past two months that he has not been in office. At this point, we really have to look at the argument of this is political. That seems to be suffering from stale move negation at this point because up to this point, you could squint and see, okay, Tish James, maybe she will or won't run, which we don't have time for today to talk about. But <laughs> at this point, Craig Apple is not running for anything other than sheriff. Yes, he's elected, but he's not trying to be governor. So the continued beating of the drum of this is political seems to be ineffective at this point. So we need to look at the actual merits instead of the defense of, well, uh, people have something to gain from the former governor no longer being in power. Yeah, before we move on, um, your Attorney General Tish James is running for governor. We don't have a lot of time to talk about that, so... Worth acknowledging. We'll, we'll do it next week. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. So, this is such a complicated case, and, and you know, sex crime cases are always a little bit tough because you always have, like, the he said, she said part of it legally, and then you have the part where you have to prove, or I guess, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt that this person has done this. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, you read the complaint. What do we have in it in terms of what they can use, what they are planning to use in this case? We have very little. It's a one-page complaint, so yes. it's kind of it's rough to see what we have now. But essentially, a law enforcement officer said, okay, I can corroborate this. But the implications are far broader than just this case. You also have the other alleged victims and accusers. But it's also a commentary. What's on trial right now is state government and institutions of power, because you have people, people here who have said, we tried to turn our voices up, but the government toned us down. But 
this is a case where some people's faith in these institutions that they believe have failed them could be restored because they are seeing people being held accountable. So over time, I think this is not just about this case, although this is incredibly important. So the governor has come out with a statement, or his spokesperson has, and his attorney has, Rita Glavin. The, the video that we just showed was from last week, but she has come out with a fresh statement saying that the governor did not do this, saying that the way that this complaint happened yesterday showed that it may have been motivated by something else. It was a surprise. The DA didn't know about it. Um, in 30 seconds, Daryl, what is the governor's defense right now? The governor's defense right now is that while I can't necessarily give you evidence that I didn't do these things, you can't prove that I did, and a lot of this is hearsay. It is no different than the defense that we got in uh, January when it came to the nursing home incident, it, no different than the book deal defense. Everything is, hey, this is political, and prove it. Wow. Well, we'll see where this goes. It is going to be a long road. Criminal cases typically take a little bit unless he enters into a plea deal. So a lot of options on the table. Daryl, thank you so much. Thank you. So as we come out of the pandemic, one industry is facing some really unique challenges in New York. And it's one that affects a lot of people. That's childcare. During the pandemic, we've seen childcare providers close throughout the state while parents continue to struggle to access that service. And for now, that's really what it is a service that's open to some, but not all. And that's not new. The issue of childcare has been a problem in New York for decades, but some are hoping that could soon change. For the final installment of our series on the future of work in New York, we spoke with providers, parents, and more on the future of childcare. Take a look. Access to affordable and reliable childcare has been a problem in New York for decades. For some parents, it's too expensive. For others, it doesn't fit their schedule. And the industry is changing. At the start of the pandemic, there were 17,000 childcare providers in New York, according to the state. But since then, more than 1,500 have gone out of business. Claudia Wolfgang is one of the lucky ones who were able to stay open. She runs a home-based childcare in Rensselaer County. I started 36 years ago when my young oldest daughter was born. I couldn't find daycare. We are 12 or 16. 12 children, infant to five, and then four school-age children. She cleans constantly and tries to get the children outside as much as possible. And it's been a challenge. Like when the school-aged kids had to learn from home, that was a problem. So she gave up her garage. With some help from a grant, she converted the space into a classroom for the kids because we cannot incorporate the school-age children because they were going to school part-time with the children that are here. We just kept, let's just keep the kids rolling. Let's just keep, that was the focus. Just keep the kids their normal day. Nothing, nothing will change. The day we spoke, three daycare providers that Claudia knew had just shut down. She bought some of their stuff, like toys and play mats, but that didn't soften the blow. For some, it was the end of their career after decades in business. And they, it's not just stuff. This was their livelihood. This was their investments. This was all their time. Not just 40 hours a week. This is 50, 60, 70 hours a week for years. And now they're closed. The pandemic hit childcare providers hard in New York. Some of them lost customers when parents started working remotely. And extra regulations to keep the virus at bay came with new costs that some providers just couldn't afford. There's a slim profit margin in childcare, so the money's not always there if something comes up. 
Kate Breslin leads the Schuyler Center, a statewide nonprofit that works on family issues like childcare. So whether it's um, needing to spend more for protective gear, you know, PPE, or needing to spend more for cleaning supplies, you add on the fact that a lot of a lot of programs lost children in the early moments of the pandemic. So a lot of programs have had to close because they just couldn't make ends meet to stay open. But New York's childcare industry was in trouble long before the pandemic. There are at least 3,000 fewer providers in New York than seven years ago, according to state data. And it's not like there's less demand. Parents compete all the time for spots. Casey O'Connor knows that struggle. His kids go to Claudia for childcare. He has two, but at first there was only one spot open. It was very hard to find part-time daycare. Um, so we pretty much begged to get in here um, and we called her like every week. And when they did get in, it was a huge relief, not only because of Claudia, but because it was less expensive than a lot of other places. And part-time daycare did tend to be, um, you know, when they prorated it, they, they you know, they spiked the prices on, on part-time as opposed to almost just expen as expensive to go part-time as it was full-time, which was one of the major challenges. For a lot of parents, the cost of childcare can drive them out of the market. The lucky ones have family or friends to watch their kid. But without that support system, the bills can add up fast. Breslin again. Childcare can cost upwards of $15,000 a year for one kid. Um, and then if you think about having two or more, sometimes it ends up driving one of the parents, often the mom, out of the workforce. So we have child care providers who can't afford to stay open and parents who can't afford child care. It's not a good mix for anyone. And there is help for parents to deal with the cost, but it's not for everyone. If your family makes less than twice the federal poverty level, you can apply for a child care subsidy. And under state law, your out-of-pocket cost after the subsidy is capped at 10% of your income. So if you make $30,000 a year, you would only pay $3,000 for child care. Sheila Poole is the commissioner of the State Office of Children and Family Services, the agency that regulates and supports child care in New York. And she says that for some families, getting a subsidy has been a game changer. Like I said, limiting co-pays to 10% of a family's income, you know, is trying to address the affordability. So imagine what it's like for families, right? Middle class, working families or families living, you know, in poverty to be able to afford and access um, childcare. But the income caps for those subsidies don't work for everyone. Like for a single parent with one child, the cutoff to qualify is about 35,000 a year. That's just a few thousand more than minimum wage. And even if more families were eligible, there's not enough money for everyone. So the state would need more funding to close that gap. Poole says that would help, but wouldn't solve the other barriers to child care. I think that really will help um, parents very much. But then you have to make sure, right, that you have accessibility, and that means having enough on the um, supply side. With fewer child care providers, parents have a smaller pool to choose from. And not all providers offer care that works for everyone. For some parents, the challenge is time. They'll work evenings or overnight, and it's hard to find childcare that fits their schedule. That's the case with Amanda Key, a parent from Saratoga County who's juggling two kids at two different daycares. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. 
Yeah, like I have to leave work early in order to get them before the daycares close. Her daycares are about a half hour apart, but she's out of options. When we spoke, Amanda was with her daughter at Joyful Beginnings, a childcare provider outside Albany. It's a center-based provider, meaning it has its own space. It's run by Jason Wellington, whose mother inspired him to get into childcare. We, uh, we serve children from six weeks to 12 years old, uh, school-age program, uh, full-time in the summertime, obviously before and after school, during the school year. He's got classrooms for the kids with plenty to do, from learning to arts and crafts. The kids seem pretty happy here, and Jason says they're making ends meet. But it's not perfect. Like a lot of child care providers, Jason has a lot of turnover. And that's because of the pay. After expenses, child care providers usually make close to minimum wage. So if a job with better pay comes along, they usually leave. I think retaining staff is a problem because of pay. I, it's challenging. I mean, I, it, it's, I don't know why that is. Um, daycare is expensive. So, I mean, it should be some type of balance. And there's actually two problems there. The pay scale isn't great. And because of that, it's hard to make a career out of childcare. Breslin, from the Schuyler Center, says that drives people away from the industry. There's also a lot of um, attention to, or desire among childcare providers to have more of a career pathway. So they move on to do something else. Sometimes that something else is going to teaching or some, something else because they just can't make a living being a child care provider. But it's not like child care providers can offer better pay either. Most don't have the money and they can't raise their prices because they might lose kids. Claudia, the home-based provider, says she wouldn't want to risk it. Okay, you could do that. We could raise rates and maybe we wouldn't be full. So it's kind of hard where you would go. I always felt that I'd rather be full and be a little less high than other people. So what do you do? That's what Senator Jabari Brisport, a Democrat from Brooklyn, is trying to figure out. In childcare, and right now we have a patchwork of providers and complicated means testing and various percentages and thresholds. And it's important to me to say that we're going to move to a system where everyone anywhere in the state can have access to childcare. Brisport chairs the Committee on Children and Families, and he wants to carve a path for universal child care. That would mean access for every parent, support for providers, and better pay for staff. And that's going to cost money. But Brisport says the state can raise it. I think we will need to raise revenue, increase taxes on the rich, and put more state investment into a universal child care program. That's the only way I see us having enough money to do this. But Commissioner Poole from OCFS says it's also about federal investment. Right now, the state is paying for a lot of child care subsidies and grants for providers using federal pandemic relief money. And as of now, the state can't afford to replace it when it runs out. But make no mistake about it, right, that a couple of years from now when that funding is exhausted, we are going to need additional federal support to sustain those gains we've made um, we're definitely going to need more money in the long run. Paying for universal child care would cost New York at least $2 billion a year, according to estimates from the state. That would be money for parents and providers who need it. But money isn't everything. Senator Dan Steck is the highest ranking Republican on the Committee on Children and Families. And he says money would help, but that the state could also streamline regulations, like licensing and operations, to make it easier on providers. Most people that get into this, they want to take care of kids. They don't want to take care of paperwork. 
And they certainly want to focus on one-time paperwork that they need to get set up in order to have a license. You know, um, if that's the barrier to providers, let's remove that entry barrier for the would-be provider. Both of those ideas, funding and regulations, will likely be up for debate next year when the state budget is due. But some say it's also about changing the conversation around child care. Right now, child care is a privilege for those who can afford it. But Breslin from the Schuyler Center says it shouldn't be that way. I think we need to start by rethinking how we think about child care. And we do need to think of it as a public good. And we're in a moment post-pandemic or mid, mid to post-pandemic where we can think about how do we think of child care as a public good because it can be good for families, it can be good for employers, it can be good for communities. And we are expecting some proposals on child care from Governor Kathy Hochul when she presents her state budget in January. So stay tuned on that. In the meantime, Tuesday is election day. And when you head to the polls, you'll see a few extra questions on the back of your ballot. You might have some local questions as well, but there will be five questions on changes to the state constitution. And these are pretty important. They'll change how New Yorkers vote, who they vote for, how the state treats the environment, and a lot more. And we want you to be prepared when you head to the ballot box. So we spoke to Blair Horner. He's the executive director of the New York Public Interest Research Group. And he broke down each proposal with us so you know what you're voting for. Blair Horner from Nyberg, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So there's these five questions on the ballot, depending on where you are. These are the five questions about the state constitution. These would change the state constitution. So let's go through them in order. The first one is the most complicated, so we're going to spend a little extra time on that one. Sure. Give me the broad strokes of this one. It's about the state's redistricting process and the state senate, the number of senators there, and how uh, redistricting works. Give me the, the brief yeah, overview mean, here. It, it really sort of piggybacks on what the changes that were made 10 years ago. Voters in 2014 approved an amendment to the state constitution to change redistricting to create a so-called independent redistricting commission and to change the system there. But there were aspects of it that the proposal didn't deal with. And so this proposal sort of deals with that. So there are elements of the current state constitution that are unconstitutional, dead wood provisions, that gets cleaned up. There are some reforms added. So as you mentioned, uh, it freezes the number of state senators at 63. The state constitution says you should be 50, but they're allowed to add them, and they've added 13. They so sure that, have. That gets, that gets dealt with. Uh, it changes uh, in terms of reform. It um, also changes a sort of a technical aspect of how the lines are drawn. Uh, for only the state senate, not the assembly, it's easier to break up cities than it is towns when you're drawing the lines. And so that gets changed so that they get treated the same. Uh, and then probably the most controversial element of it is it changes the way that the redistricting commission conducts itself, organizes itself, and how the legislature can respond. And the most controversial part of that is if the legislature rejects what the commission's come up with, or the commission doesn't come up with anything, uh, how do they vote on that? And that's been really, the, I think, where the most controversial element of the proposal is. So how is it right now? We do have the redistricting commission right now. So how would it change between what is happening right now and what would change under this amendment? 
Well, it, the first thing it changes is uh, the timetable. So the state constitution was written in 2014, 2012 for 2014, that um, said the timetable was based on a state primary in September, and now it's June, right? So it changes the timetables there because it'd be too late. People will be petitioning in February to run for primaries. Uh, so the maps have to be in place. So that's one sort of aspect of it. Another is uh, on the voting, right now there's an independent so-called uh, redistricting commission, uh, which is made up of five Democrats, five Republicans, essentially. Uh, and they have to approve the maps with seven out of 10 votes. It goes to the legislature. If it does that, then the legislature just have to have a simple majority to approve it. If, the, if, if either the commission can't come up with the seven votes, or they don't report anything, or the legislature rejects the commission's plan, under the current state constitution, if the parties are, if there's one party in control of each house, you need a 60% vote in both houses to approve it, uh, and then it goes to the governor. Um, and if it's one party controls both houses, then you need 67%, which is what the Democrats have now. The, under the change, it would say, basically the first two things are the same, but you only need 60% vote under any circumstances. It doesn't matter who controls which party, just says 60%. And so that's really where the Republicans howl the loudest um, that somehow it can hurt them. Although I think as a practical matter for this redistricting, it doesn't matter that much since the Democrats have two thirds in both houses. But that's the that's really where the sort of the controversy exists. From our perspective, of course, we always wanted an independent redistricting commission. Right. And so we're not as concerned about all the gobbledygook about the voting patterns. And we'll post the full text of that amendment on our website because there's a lot to it. Let's go through the, the next four. And these are a lot easier. So we can breeze through these, uh, provide a little explanation. The second one is a constitutional right to clean air and water and a healthful environment in New York. It sounds kind of broad. Is it as simple as it sounds? Yeah, it's as simple as it sounds. Uh, I mean, it's one sentence basically added to the state constitution. Uh, there are provisions in the state constitution about uh, the environment in terms of, uh, the, like, for example, the Adirondack and Catskill State Parks being forever wild. Uh, so this would basically create this sort of dynamic. And really, the, the, the meaningful impact would be that it will, it will force state lawmakers and state regulators to think about how do they ensure that New Yorkers have access to clean air and clean water, which I don't think anybody can argue with that. Uh, going forward and how that process plays out. Since there's not a lot of meat on the bones with, with regard to that provision, uh, my guess is there'll be some state legislation to follow, assuming it's, it's approved. Yeah, I think so too, especially um, I've heard some controversy over litigation that might arise from this and people saying then the courts can define what this amendment means and all of that, which will be really interesting to watch after it's enacted, assuming that it's approved by well, voters. Just, just a bit quick. I mean, like any other provision of the state yes. constitution, of course, you know, it could end up uh, being challenged. Uh, the issues could be challenged in, uh, in the courts and that's an appropriate way for them to get dealt with. Absolutely, all the time. The third is same-day voter registration, something that Democrats have been talking about for a while. It is a little bit wordy, the amendment, so I won't read it word for word, but this does mean that people could register to vote the same day and um, less than 10 days before an election, right? Yeah, the state constitution right now says you can't, there's a blackout period right before election day. Within 10 days, you can't register to vote. But there's a state law that says 25. 
Uh, so this constitutional amendment eliminates the 10-day blackout period, but state lawmakers would still have to deal with legislation to sort of deal with it. Uh, states that we view this as best practice, states that have uh, allow people to register and vote on Election Day, and there's all sorts of processes to do it. There's many states that have this. Uh, those are states that have much higher voter participation rates in New York. So this would have to be something that this amendment passes, and then the legislature right. would have to do something to promulgate how it's going to work. That's exactly right. I imagine it's the same with the next one, no absentee, uh, no no excuse absentee voting. So we saw during COVID, we had this uh, when former Governor Cuomo said, you know, you can vote absentee no matter what. So this would basically be like this, right? I, I guess it's sort of similar to what people call vote by mail. Yeah, I mean, right now under the state constitution, you are allowed to get an absentee mail-in ballot uh, if you're going to be, if you're sick or if you're going to be traveling. So you have to have an excuse. That's what's called excuse absentee ballot. If this proposal passes, New York would be like, I think it's about 20 other states that have that type of, you just, if you want a mail-in ballot, you get it. And that I think deals with a lot of issues for people, not just if you're ill, uh, but if you have uh, job responsibilities, family responsibilities, you'd be able to get a mail-in ballot. If it's approved, uh, I think that would be something that New Yorkers have gotten used to and would like to see keep going, but we'll see. So the last one, that was number four. The last one is, is very local. So our statewide audience may not be interested, but you are gonna be voting on it. So please listen to this. Uh, it is an amendment to increase the New York City Civil Court's jurisdiction by allowing it to hear and decide claims for up to 50 grand instead of the limit of 25 grand. In this case, the current limit of 25,000 went into effect in 1983. And the supporters of the amendment said, well, there's been th something called inflation uh, over the past uh, nearly 40 years, uh, <laughs> and we should update it. And that's essentially the argument as to why the uh, increase goes from 25,000 to 50,000, as you mentioned. It's interesting. I mean, it's a very local issue, but it's still interesting. Um, those are the five amendments. I mean, a lot of them are straightforward. We'll put the text of them on our website. But Blair Horner from Nyperg, thank you so much for this experience. Thank you. And don't forget, you have to flip over the ballot yes. to make the marks. Flip over the ballot. That's where they are. <laughs> thank you. All right. So please don't forget to flip over your ballot on Tuesday to vote on those amendments. And then tune in to next week's show when we should know how they turned out. We'll see you then. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.